You're listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie hockheiser Ilkovich, And today I'm talking to Janita Dew, who is the Senior Vice President and Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Warner Media News and Sports. And she has the special honor of being our first Zoom interview for the podcast. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. We're really excited to talk to you today. Um, this is going to be a great conversation. And to dive right in, we are always talking about coffee on this podcast. Um, and I want to know, what is your coffee drink of choice? Okay. Well, I didn't tell you guys this when you invited me to participate because I figured you wouldn't want me, but I actually do not drink coffee. I <laughs> never planned to. And, um, you know, one year I lived in Italy, um, specifically in Rome, and they couldn't believe it. Non beve cafe? Non beve cafe? No, no, I don't. I don't have coffee. So sorry to disappoint, but I do not have a favorite uh, coffee of choice. So how about that? <laughs> what are your beverages? So what are the drinks you enjoy? If we're not drinking coffee, how do you get your caffeine? Let's see. Well, that that's part of the problem, I think. <laughs> um, I, I'm sorry, I know. I didn't tell you all this because uh, I just didn't want it to, you know, jeopardize my chances <laughs> of actually being your first guest uh, virtually. But um, I really don't drink caffeine <laughs> at all. I drink water. Basically, my, my, my beverages of choice are water and white wine. That's just sort of <laughs> depending on the time of day. That's about all I drink. Um, anyway, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it works. It seems to be doing the job. It seems to be working. I, I love that and impressed, uh, impressed that you can do everything you do without a ton of caffeine. So that, that is very impressive. I'd be a little afraid to see myself on caffeine, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but uh, maybe one day I will try. <laughs> Well, don't get started for us, but if you choose to. <laughs> Your role, uh, Senior Vice President, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, it is a really unique title, and we, I know more and more roles are, are kind of popping up like this. Um, what, what does that job mean? What is the actual job? And then I love, we'll get into more of the path that led you there, but, but what is that role? Okay, I don't know how much time you have <laughs> to answer this question, but I am... Um... Listen, I, I read some, some articles somewhere that indicated that the chief diversity officer roles are, are now like the, um, the, the most active roles out there at all companies. Uh, you know, and I know many industries are cutting back in, in terms of headcount and positions, but diversity officer roles are very, very prevalent right now uh, for obvious reasons. And, and really what a chief diversity officer or a chief diversity and inclusion officer or a chief diversity um, equity and inclusion officer, uh, what, they, what they do, it's all related. And, um, and I can explain very briefly the different aspects of it. I mean, you know, I often have viewed diversity and inclusion to be sort of modern day civil rights. And when you see what's going on in society, I think that's clearer now than ever before, because what it really does is it's, it's a role that serves a company 
it's a, I view it as a business function. Some diversity officer roles report in through HR. Um, you obviously often partner with HR, but it's really important in my view for diversity and inclusion to be viewed as a business function. And so our team is constituted as a, as a business unit reporting directly into the president of and chairman of Warner Media News and Sports. But what the role does is to sort of look at the organization, look at the company and figure out are there ways to make uh, improvements and progress around diversity, which is sort of, um, you know, the differences that people bring into an organization. Um, is there underrepresentation somewhere? And if so, how are you going to address it? How are you going to try to change that? Not only do you look at representation, but you also look at the workplace culture. Um, and you also look at your role in the marketplace. And so in terms of your, your consumers, your audiences, um, your viewers, whatever, whatever um, your marketplace, however that's defined, those are, in my view, those are the major elements of, of a diversity officer function, looking at the workforce, looking at the workplace, and work, looking at the marketplace. It's really fascinating. And it's interesting that you say that. I was thinking as we were prepping for this conversation that this role must just be getting to be, you know, if organizations don't have one, they're creating this role, and if they do, they're really um, elevating it and and kind of defining it more and more. That's true, and it's really important. Um, and listen, I know there's a lot of discussion within the diversity and inclusion space as to, you know, whether or not companies are really serious about this, or are they really committed, or are they really invested? You know, my philosophy has always been don't worry about the motives. Let's not be sort of cynical about motives. Um, let's just seize it and run with it. And so for all of those companies that never had diversity functions, uh, good for them for creating them, right? Uh, but the important part to understand is one person, like one diversity officer or one diversity equity inclusion officer cannot by him or herself change an entire company. I mean, that's really important to understand. I mean, the importance of the role is to really ensure that diversity and inclusion efforts are always integrated into a business. They're always top of mind for a business, but it's not the role of a diversity and inclusion officer to solve all of a company's problems. And so that's, that's sort of, um, and honestly, that's part of the debate about whether those officers are needed or not. I mean, some would say, well, all of a senior management team or an executive team or all of the C-suite should be responsible for implementing diversity and inclusion efforts and executing on them. Uh, which is true. I mean, that's true regardless, but having a dedicated role does ensure that there's more accountability. It ensures that there's more communication and collaboration. Um, a lot of what I do involves connecting the dots, like connecting the dots between HR and recruiting even, or connecting the dots between marketing and programming and research. And just, uh, it's, it's a great opportunity uh, to ensure that an entire organization understands and is aligned around a mission and goals around diversity and inclusion. And I have to say, I've always considered myself to be a bridge builder. And I actually never realized that until my speech and debate coach wrote an essay for me um, in support of my college applications. And he's the one who first used that term for me. And, and when I read it, that's when I realized, oh my goodness, that is what I am. That's what I've been, a bridge builder. And so I do feel not only are you building bridges 
amongst different departments in a, in a company, you're building bridges between the employees and management. You're that liaison. I mean, you get it from all ends. You're hearing from your employees, you're accessible to them. You want to ensure that you are advocating for them. And you're also, of course, advising and, and, and counseling management and you're helping them determine what their strategies and policies should be. And so that's, that's, that's a huge uh, bridge to, to build and also, just between our company and our audiences. It's sort of like you're also reflecting and representing what our audiences expect and want from us. So, so it's, it's really, um, it's a great role for somebody, first of all, who has tenacity. <laughs> you have to have that. Um, you have to have diplomacy, but you also have to have directness and you just have to have a lot of passion. And so notwithstanding the lack of um, caffeine, <laughs> I, I feel <laughs> to bring all of that to the role. Um, and also you have to be authentic. I mean, the most important thing for any diversity and inclusion officer to be successful is that you have to have the trust of employees because at the end of the day, you really are advocating for them. And it's hard, it's, and it's hard to, um, you know, it's hard to retain trust if, if employees feel as if you know, there's, there's conversation and discussion, but there's no action. And so, you know, the most important thing for any corporation or organization is to ensure that employees understand what you're trying to do. I mean, there's always going to be more to do, but they need to understand that you are trying. And so um, that's, that's something that's really important. I love that. And I really, this conversation, I, I, I already love it, but I also really like thinking about people listening to this who maybe knew this was a job, but didn't know what it kind of was. And they're listening saying, oh, that like what you're saying this, I'm like, there's so many elements of this job that I think really um, open people's minds that are listening to this conversation, even about this as a career and as a role or, you know, building out the departments at, the, at their own organization my background um, and in terms of my schooling and in terms of my, my family, I, I am the daughter of civil rights leaders. And they always showed me that one person can make a difference. And because they were involved in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, I also came to learn that the media and the civil rights movement came of age together. If you think about the 1960s, if you really go back and think about it, um, you know, the civil rights movement and those foot soldiers and those, uh, all of the different civil rights organizations that were involved, they all had sophisticated media strategies. Their goal was to draw attention to what was going on in the South. And they relied on the news media to tell those stories. And the news media rose to the occasion time and time again. I'm sort of paraphrasing um, Anthony Lewis who wrote the book, um, Make No Law. So, um, uh, so this theory really comes from him. And it's so true and it's, it's as true now as before. I mean, if you think about it in terms of the social justice movement, the movement against racial injustice that's happening in society right now, I mean, it really has relied on the media to, to, to give light and to tell these stories and to ensure that there's, you know, the appropriate context is provided, that, you know, underlying um, uh, circumstances are shared. Uh, so when you talk about racism, people understand that you're talking about systemic and institutionalized elements of society and that, you know, we rely on the news media 
to help raise awareness around that and sort of rouse the nation, the nation's consciousness. And that's, that's important for any social justice movement to be effective. And so I, it makes sense in a way, you know, sort of being raised by these civil rights leaders. And then I sort of had a sort of a white torturous path. It wasn't like a straightforward um, path to, to becoming a, a chief diversity the inclusion officer, but I did study in, in college, I studied um, social change theory and intergroup relations, and then I got a master's studying race relations and social change as well, and um, organizational culture. So really a master's of psychology with a focus on social psychology. So that, that really does make sense. In the meantime, I became a lawyer too, and, uh, and, and became a First Amendment attorney, uh, which I love, love, love being because um, as a First Amendment attorney, you are giving voice to others as well. I mean, you're helping, uh, you're helping the news media uh, tell these stories that matter and tell them in a way uh, that will draw attention to, to what's going on in society so that, you know, viewers can make their decisions about what's right or what's wrong and what policies to, to support or not support. And so I, being a First Amendment attorney at CNN really gave me the opportunity to get, uh, well, to be connected to our content because our journalists grew to know me and respect me and, and value my judgment uh, around issues uh, ranging from legal issues to issues around storytelling of, of communities of color and other um, types of storytelling, just that perspective that I lent. I think that that established trust has made it easier for me to be a chief diversity and inclusion officer because listen, I, I, I listed all the traits that you need to be in this kind of role. I mean, the point is, is that in any organization, but particularly in an organization where people are so busy and sort of like, it's like nonstop, you know, deadlines and everything else, you know, there needs to be an opening right um for these kinds of um, initiatives and and efforts and commitment to find a home and it's because of that established trust that i've been able to be impactful or at least and, and i hope to be even more impactful i'm just starting off in this sort of uh in this role um in this specific role at this time i, I had a similar function in the past at cnn um, for almost eight years, actually, <laughs> I was um, leading the diversity council and I was the chief diversity advisor, but it was, it was, you know, it was almost, I mean, it's hard to say this because I, I did it full time. I had two full time jobs as a First Amendment attorney and as a chief diversity advisor. Um, it was almost a volunteer job, so to speak. Um, so two full time jobs for the price of one, but still a lot of success and a lot of impactful effort. But now, obviously, sort of, you know, when Jeff Zucker a year ago realized how important it was to have a dedicated function uh, that reported to him, and this preceded, obviously, everything going on in the last several weeks around, um, you know, racial injustice. I mean, he really understood the importance of what this function was, and um, and it's been something that's, you know, the fact that we were already in place and we had already started to identify our mission and our goals and we're socializing those. Uh, I mean, the timing is such that uh, myself and my colleague, Andrea Bibbs, who's our senior director of strategy, are in a good position to really now move forward from, from our, you know, from the ideating to the action. That's great. Yeah. It's amazing to hear that this kind of, the, the changes started even a year ago within this organization. And we're talking, you know, now in the middle of everything happening, but it's very forward thinking. 
as you're talking, you know, your path hasn't necessarily been straightforward as so many paths are. If someone was interested in kind of pursuing this type of role, what are some of the elements, like maybe you don't need to be a lawyer or maybe you do, like what are some of the elements that you've learned from your own journey that you would say, absolutely, you should try to focus on these? Let me, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll share an anecdote here. Yes, Actually, please. I'll, I'll be, I'll be vague about, I, I won't <laughs> identify people. But listen, when I first joined CNN, because of my background, as I shared, I, always, I already had that interest, not only just in civil rights uh, domestically, but I had worked for an anti-racism organization as the vice president of an anti-racism organization based in Italy. And, um, and so I've all, you know, it's just been in my blood, right? And so when I started as an attorney early on, I, I yeah, attended a town hall where the, the prior management of CNN was uh, on stage talking about diversity and inclusion. They mentioned that there was a diversity council and I, I was very interested. I had done some, for our legal department, I had helped launch an outreach initiative with local um, HBC, historically black colleges and universities and um, other local colleges to try to attract more students of color into the legal profession to share with them all the different fun things you can do with a law degree um, other than just sitting behind a desk right mm -hmm. and uh, so I, I reached out to uh, the prior head of the diversity council expressing interest and the sense I got was like oh you're a lawyer you know we don't need lawyers <laughs> right and so that was just to me a little disheartening only because again, yes, I was a lawyer, but I was a content lawyer. So I was very connected to our content and that, you know, to editorial. And uh, I, I don't remember what transpired, but I don't know if it was within a year. I, I reached out to the, um, uh, the president of CNN uh, around a town hall and, uh, and then we met and I was talking about some of the things that I was interested in and, and my background. And before I knew it, he was asking if I would lead the diversity efforts. And so um, all of this is to say that being a lawyer is not necessarily an advantage, but, um, <laughs> but it can. <laughs> and to be honest, you know, employment lawyers, I know that there are employment lawyers um, who have become the heads of diversity because closely connected to HR and workforce issues. But again, I've always felt it's very important for a diversity role to report into the president of an organization and not into HR, because if you report only into HR, then that, then it becomes, um, then the business, then the business side is not necessarily going to be as open to your efforts. And that's why, you know, at CNN and now at Warner Media News and Sports, um, the fact that I report into the, the head of Warner Media News and Sports, and I'm a partner with HR, and I'm a partner with talent acquisition, and a partner with marketing and comms and, and sales and research, um, that makes the big difference. And again, it's because um, really you need to reach people where they understand that there is a, a business value, and it's not just about um, it's not just about numbers. I mean, it's about it's about the value that you bring to the organization. How can we grow our business? Um, how can we be more successful as a business uh, with improved diversity and with uh, a more inclusive culture? And uh, and that's the best way to be successful. So just to sort of go back to your question, that the, what 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 should people 
uh, what areas or should people study where the, should they come from? I think, okay, as I said, you know, a law degree is not a bad thing. <laughs> um, um, a degree in marketing is not a bad thing. A degree in sales <laughs> is not a bad uh, thing to have. My, my um, colleague, our senior director of diversity and inclusion strategy, she has a, a sales and business background, which is extremely important because again, you know, this is a business imperative. Um, I'm trying to think of whatever, what other backgrounds uh, would make psychology, my, my social psychology, if you have training, you know, um, in social psychology and in organizational culture um, and an HR background, of course, um, makes sense as well. So any of those things though, I, I don't think that, I mean, to be honest, I think that you could, you could become a diversity and inclusion leader with, uh, you know, varied backgrounds and be successful at it. Um, and so that's something to keep in mind. I, I don't ever want people to feel limited just because they haven't studied a certain thing. I mean, there's, there's so many ways you can gain experience. And I love what you're, how you're talking about it in terms of like, the business behind it, which when you're saying it, it sounds so obvious, like, of course, and if, a, and if an organization is going to fund this type of role, there should be a business goal. But I do think where we run into a lot of issues with roles like these is they don't set hard business goals for them. And so they don't, you know, people don't see it contributing necessarily to the bottom line. So I think that is, is vital. And it, it kind of brings me to, to another question in terms of you know, if you're in an organization, so it sounds like you're really lucky to be in an organization that already was thinking about this and you right. then could kind of advance that thinking. If, right. if we, you know, if I'm listening to this and I'm part of an organization that doesn't have right. anything like this and I really want to, you know, I mean, maybe set up a role like this, but even just improve diversity within my organization, what, um, from your experience, you know, are some of the things you've learned? What kind of tips could you give? First and foremost, however they constitute it, whether it's some sort of committee or they're developing a business function, again, it needs to report into the head of the organization and not, re and not report into HR. I think that's really important. There, that, and in that way, across the board, all of these other departments understand as well that they're responsible for institutionalize some of these efforts in their departments and partnering across the board um, with the DNI leader. Uh, so that's one thing that I say. Another thing I, I say is it's important to develop a clear mission. And, and that's why, you know, for the first few months of, of our team being uh, constituted, we spent time, you know, sort of talking to employees, talking to managers to really develop well, our mission statement, because it's hard enough in a diversity and inclusion role when there's so many moving pieces. And as I said, a lot of it relates to collaborating and coordinating and leading by influence instead of authority. I mean, there's so much going on that you, you always need to be able to <laughs> understand, well, what, what's our mission? What are we trying to accomplish, right? Especially if they're limited resources. So then you have your mission and you develop clear goals. Again, I've shared the areas that I think are important. I think their workforce goals, their workplace goals, the marketplace goal, and then the, the product goal, and then that's content on our side. You know, other people may make widgets, but you know, Coca-Cola has its, its products. Um, you know, I, again, because of my background, I just love that our products is our content and sort of, you know, so you should also have product-based initiatives, making sure that you are figuring out ways to make whatever your product is to, you know, audiences across the board, multicultural audiences, broader audiences, whatever you want. I mean, just to make sure that your initiatives also 
you know, are looking at what your product is, in my view, I mean, I'm not like, listen, take it or leave it, but this is based on my experience. And then, and then you need to figure out, and this is what you just said, you have to figure out how to measure it, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, it is real. And, that, and honestly, that's something that I, you know, that I think all diversity and inclusion practitioners grapple with in some form or another. I mean, the easiest thing to measure uh, relates to employee demographics, right? So if you know where you've started, then you know, you know, if you've made progress and also, you know, how to identify what your priorities are and the areas you should focus on, that's the easier stuff to measure. I mean, you know, initiatives relating to workplace culture, I mean, figuring out how to, how to measure the impact of those initiatives, you know, and in our, in our um, organization, we, we have focused a lot on trying to create a culture where people are comfortable using their voice, right? Giving, and I've always felt, in addition to being a, a bridge builder, that, you know, if you were to describe me, I've always felt that I'm somebody um, who uh, is committed to giving voice to others. And so I've tried to integrate that into our diversity and inclusion mission and goals. And so, you know, if, you're, if your workplace goal relates to creating that culture where employees are connected and they feel comfortable, you know, using their voices, well, how, how do you measure that, right? I mean, you know, you, you may have these like, and we do have ongoing conversations uh, around certain um, topics related to the news as a springing point, but as a way for employees to share their personal experiences around them. Well, how do you know that you really are creating, you know, that culture of connection and engagement and, and, and you know, um, allotting your employees just, you know, that opportunity to use their voices. And so, you know, how you measure that, it, I think is, it can be challenging, but I think that one thing you can look at is sort of participation. And then also mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, I know it's not sort of scientific, but you can get a sense of how much employees are, are reaching out uh, to their managers or speaking up. Um, and that's something that we really want. And at the same time, and this is something that I say all the time, that as we are encouraging employees to use their voices, we have to be ready to hear what they say, right? My goodness. I mean, there are so many employee meetings and town halls. You read about them all the time that are happening uh, because this, this, is, this is incredible. I mean, this sort of just... This, this galvanization around, um, you know, combating injustice, it is, I've never seen anything like this. And I'm sure, and I know, I, you know, my father has not seen anything like this since the 1960s. Um, but the difference is, it's like, it's, it's in the, it's inside corporate America. <laughs> They're not necessarily used to it, but we have to, we have to uh, create that environment so that employees feel comfortable uh, using their voices and expressing their feelings because that's the worst thing. And then there, there's a Harvard Business Review article called Toward a Racially Just Workplace uh, that I recommend that people read. And what that article shows is that you have people even who seem successful, they're walking around in corporate America. You know, these are um, um, middle class or upper middle class African-Americans uh, who just feel represented, unsupported, and unfulfilled. And, 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 and so imagine being in a workplace where you're almost, you almost have to be two people, right? You can't even be yourself fully. I mean, this sense of, and that's what inclusion is. I, and I actually, I just recall now that I, I described what diversity was, but I didn't describe what inclusion was. Inclusion is making sure that everybody can realize their full potential and that people are encouraged to be themselves and, and, and proactively. So inclusion isn't a passive thing. Inclusion is a proactive thing where you want to 
you know, actively uh, cultivate and encourage and seek out people's diversity, right? And, and, and leverage it to the benefit of your organization and to your product. I'm learning so much just talking about this and having the opportunity to kind of hear about your role and the path and, and your job is very busy, I'm sure. It's extremely busy. But it seems like you also have time to spend, you know, be on the board of numerous nonprofit civil organizations. And I'd love to hear, you know, wh what that work is, what those organizations are, but also how, you know, this is a career podcast. So as much as we're talking about this specific role, like how in general you're able to find the time to do it. <laughs> I mean, I think that there are varying degrees of success. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I know there's so many people out there who, who want to find ways um, to make a difference. And, you know, then of course, you know, some of these relationships are tied to our organ, our corporation. And so I, you know, some I was asked to, um, to join and some I sort of sought out. And I, I do want to give some advice though. I mean, it's so important to not overextend yourself because you're not gonna be any good to anybody else if you're overextended. And you want to, you really want, I mean, your goal should be to be, um, you know, a really engaged board member in whatever you do. And, and listen, I know that there are some boards that are working boards, some boards that are just fundraising boards. Um, I don't think at the end of the day, it really helps an organization just to be, a, a, you know, an extra person on their list. Um, I do think it's important to um, to try to be as engaged as possible. I've successfully said no to some things um, because, uh, you, as my mom would always have would always say, you need to put on your you know your your own oxygen mask first uh, before helping others. But um, I'm actually even the chair of one of the boards that I'm on, which is <laughs> like uh, to be honest, I. I decided to, I mean, I guess I agreed to do that before I started my new role. <laughs> um, so it's been interesting, uh, but I'm passionate. It's called Kenny Leon's True Colors Theater Company. And so you guys are in New York. Well, actually, I'm sure everybody, people can access the podcast from all over, but you know that Kenny Leon is this like Tony award-winning director who has just, just um, been an incredible voice uh, of, of black theater and he is just um, he's amazing and he founded this theater um, to really to give a venue uh, of black voices uh, but also encourage participation and engagement of people of all of races and ethnicities um, and so uh, I mean so I joined um, Kenny is now like the artistic director emeritus we have Jamil Jude who's an amazing director and, and Chandra um, Stevens Albright who is the um, uh, managing director and it is like it is something that I was afraid to join because I just don't have a background in the arts at all and I'm like, oh my gosh, why me? I can't do this. But if you think about it, it's about giving voice. Like these productions and art and the plays and the, it's giving voice. It's giving voice to, to others. And, and, and I just, you know, and obviously another goal is to, to share and raise awareness and connect people. And okay, well, that all made sense to me. And so I'm very proud to be chair of that board. And of course, you know, all institutions that rely on patrons to walk in the doors. Um, and so uh, I want us all to continue to support in whatever ways. I mean, look, you're doing the virtual, bot the virtual uh, 
podcast, we can, uh, you know, we can all just log on and, and find these theaters and, and stay involved with them and make sure that we're, we're still, you know, maintaining that connection because when everybody's going to be ready to be up and running again, we're going to appreciate that kind of art more than ever before. And so I do, I do recommend uh, just supporting the arts as much as we can. I know AT&T and I gave a huge grant to um, many um, uh, arts-related institutions, including True Colors, including um, the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, uh, which is another organization that I'm on the board of. And uh, I'm very proud that I was the chair of the CEO Search Committee. And we found a wonderful new CEO for that board um, about two years ago. Her name is Jill Savitt, and she, she originally was working with the Holocaust Museum, but she is just amazing. So I'm very proud of that. I mean, I, 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 I'm not, the, listen, I don't think I could ever be the chair of the board of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Um, the Honorable Shirley Franklin, uh, who is the former mayor of Atlanta, is currently the chair um, but I, I, you know, I kind of go in and, and I, I'm do something impactful and then I kind of, you know, step away for a bit <laughs> and go back in and do something impactful. And, uh, but that's sort of how you do it. When you are going to be involved with multiple boards, it's important again, to understand what your limitations are. I cannot be the chair of every board that I'm on. So you just sort of figure out what makes the most sense, uh, based on your schedule and, uh, and your interests. And then, you know, you can kind of switch it out and swap it up a bit if you need to. But I just, I feel, again, with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, it's, you know, I'm really passionate about that because it's not just a center of our past. It's a center that's dedicated to really helping shape and grow the next generation of foot soldiers. And it does so in a way that um, where we can draw on the lessons from the past and just this new generation of leadership. Um, and I, so that's why I, I love the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. And, uh, and so I'm on other boards too, but we'd be here all day if I, <laughs> if I talked about all of them. So. I love it. I mean, I really, what, what I love about your story, and I don't know if you hear this in, in yourself when you're talking, but, you know, there's certain like tent poles to kind of your life and your mission and your belief. And then everything that you do ties back to them for your, you know, your job and, and these volunteer opportunities. There's a lesson to be learned as, you know, for our listeners and for me to really think about maybe for each of us, what our own kind of specific things are. And also if you were raised, you know, in this environment, it's going to be built into your DNA no matter what, but thinking about, okay, what are some of these things that I truly believe in? Because then probably, I mean, you tell me, but it doesn't feel as much like work or like these organizations, <laughs> you know, volunteer opportunities don't feel, you, you want to do them. They don't feel like obligations because it all is, you know, tied to that. Well, believe me, heading diversity is work. It feels like work, but it's so fulfilling. It, it is, right. I'm telling you, it is so fulfilling. And, and something, gosh, you've said so much, I just want to follow up on, but something to remember in the diversity and inclusion space there's always going to be more to do, okay? There's always going to be criticism either externally or internally, or self-reflection where you realize, or self-awareness where you realize that you haven't achieved enough. So we have to realize that and accept that. So then that means you also have to celebrate things you're doing well. Like you have to celebrate things you're doing well. That is so important. And as I said, it's never going to be enough because there's always going to be more to do. 
But um, if you don't celebrate achievement and progress, I, I think that the morale of the people leading the efforts and management will also uh, diminish. And so it's really important for all of us to acknowledge when our companies or when uh, you know our companies or other companies are doing well, um, while at the same time advocating for change. And so I do, I do think that's important. And you, you, you said something about my, um, oh my goodness, you said something else that I wanted to remark upon. Um, I, I, listen, it's not as if I knew what a First Amendment attorney was when I was growing up. I didn't, I didn't know what a diversity and inclusion leader was when I was growing up. And so I do think that there are certain things that are fundamental to who I am but it was not a straightforward path. And so I want people to realize you can, you know, give yourselves that grace of not knowing exactly what you want to do, but just understand who you are and what you want to achieve with your lives. Then I think you're going to get to the right place. Yeah, I, I'm sure our listeners are tired of me saying this because I say it all the time, but truly, like, there are so many jobs that essentially haven't been invented yet, right? Like, they don't even exist. So as you fall, and, and especially in today's world, I mean, things are changing so quickly. Um, and so as you, it's, it's really hard to plan for, and for those of us who are planners, that's difficult, but to think about, you know, leaving that open and to look for roles and opportunities and career next steps that take a shift from what you were doing before, but still allow you to have your values and to let your experience shine. Um, I think that's a really exciting way to look at your career. And so, yeah, I mean, to think about this role and as we're talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, I know this is a field and many people work in it, but this is going to be a place where as other opportunities, especially in the world of media, other opportunities get smaller, this is a place that things will get bigger. So to think about, you know, being able to put your own talents into this, I, I think it's really, it's really exciting and really interesting to think about. Excellent. <laughs> so we've been, you've been working from home, I'm assuming for <laughs> months, <laughs> months and months and months. Um, what are some of the things that you've learned either about the corporate world or yourself or work in general from working, you know, from all of us kind of working remotely? Are there, is there anything that has surprised you? Anything you've taken away? Well, it's funny. I used to love working remotely. <laughs> like that was like the big thing. And as, um, as a media lawyer who basically, you know, had my phone in my hand all the time, vetting scripts and answering questions um, sometimes often on call all hours of the day or night from reporters and producers around the world, digital um, writers and uh, editors as well. I, I enjoyed it because I could do my job wherever, like seriously. And so I'm from Miami. I was born and raised in Miami. And so if it was particularly cold during the winter, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'd work remotely a few days a week and it was not a problem. The head of our group was great about that. Um, but, you know, when it's forced upon you, it's, you don't enjoy it anymore. Um, I mean, I obviously, I love spending more time with my cats. <laughs> like, you know, they're going to be in shock if and when we ever go back to the office because they, they just see us all the time now. Um, you know, it's been hard for my kids who are um, 14 and 16. Just, you know, I think those are stages where socialization is so important. And um, so that that's been difficult, just trying to institute like the routines that have been a little different. We take the nightly walks, 
we all, some of us, not myself as much, but others in the family, you know, try and get out of them. <laughs> we don't feel like it, but, um, <laughs> but we just, just to move a little bit, right? Yeah. We have to, we have to move around the house a bit more. Um, um, building that team spirit is harder during, um, you know, during the time of working from home. I, I do think that's tougher. Ours was a new team. And so uh, my executive assistant today just came up with this great idea about ways we could sort of, um, you know, have more team time together. Just, you know, when things are so busy, because they are, as I said, like very hectic um, in the role, it, it, it's also hard, right? When you're not like around each other um, to, to ensure that, you know, we're, we're looking out for those sort of those, those personal cues or those needs or whatever that you normally would be able to easily recognize or address mm -hmm. in person. And so that piece has been difficult, but we're trying, I think we're all trying to find ways to transcend <laughs> those challenges and overcome those challenges. And so I think that, I mean, I, I certainly think there's a way to do it. I was just going to give a funny anecdote. Uh, well, I think it's funny, but I told you earlier, but for the benefit of your, of your um, listeners, <laughs> you know, the, the, the sort of navigating the fact that there are a couple of us who have to have workspaces where, you know, they're not toilets flushing in the middle of a video call or, um, you know, just, you know, loud, like phone conversations when you're trying to concentrate. So I've been relegated to our bedroom. That's like my workspace. My husband has like the home office space. Um, sorry, which is which is connected to the guest bedroom my dad's visiting. And so we had a couple of potential. Well, we had one mishap today because, sorry, um, you know, my husband was getting onto this call and he literally had just muted when I was asking my dad, did you go to the bathroom yet before your thing? That was, that was one bad. And, and then, you know, I was kind of being a little cheeky about it. Um, my husband, I, I went in, I was wearing the mask because I'd just been around my dad and the cat wanted to jump on my shoulder. And so I went into the home office area with like the mask on, a little hunched over, the cat on my shoulder and I'm walking in his video view and he's on this meeting with like outside investors and it's like, what is going on? It's just, I'm sorry, you just have to, you just have to find things to do to laugh a little bit sometimes so just you know. I mean obviously our expectations of I have changed like in my house my husband works in the kitchen and the one rule I have I'm like it's fine if you want to work in the kitchen I mean I'm going to be in and out but I ha speaking of coffee I'm like I have to be able to make coffee anytime so I have to be able to grind the beans even if you're on like the most important meeting we're making coffee and you know his coworkers are used to me walking back and forth. It, it is what it is. And just remembering, freshen up or, you know, take a shower. <laughs> or, <you> know, <laughs> like that, just to, it just helps you. That sense of normalcy is important, yeah. right? So I think <laughs> brush your teeth, all of those things will, will help you feel better about the situation, you know? Yeah, I know. It would be interesting to see how things, like to hear you talk about it, clearly, you would like some kind of live office at some point, right? To go back to like, even yeah. if it's not five days a week, like some people, yeah. you know, some people think they don't want to go to the office. Some people they do. So it'll be so interesting to see how it plays out when we can go back and what organizations decide. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we have a few little games that we love to play with our guests before we wrap up our conversation. Um, we've talked about, 
and such incredible stuff. It's, this has really been interesting and I've taken so much away. Um, but we love to ask our guests classically annoying interview questions. So I encourage our guests to either answer these. You can answer them honestly, how you really want to answer, or you can answer them how you think you should answer if I was interviewing you for a job. <laughs> Okay, well, it'll, it'll, it will depend on the question, which route I take. How about that? Okay, that sounds good. So the first question is, what are your biggest strengths and weaknesses? My biggest strengths are I'm a, I'm a great advocate for others. Um, I am persistent, sometimes like a dog with the bone. I've heard that inside Santa and I've heard that in the home. <laughs> so <laughs> first in all places. Um, and I, as, as I mentioned, I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm good about collaborating and, and connecting people, building bridges. I don't like conflict and, and that's, um, but I've learned to, I mean, as a lawyer, I mean, my gosh, that's what you have to do. And I, and I handle it, the way I handle conflict is because I'm able to handle it when I know that others are relying on me, right? So you know, whatever the conflict is, it needs to be resolved so that I could either be more effective or our team can be more effective or that, you know, if it's, if, if, if it's advocating, I mean, as I said, I'm a strong advocate for others. So usually it's just conflict relating to me that I avoid if it's relating to others. Um, I'm pretty, I can be very strong and I don't have a, an issue kind of um, advocating. Um, so it's just sometimes, you know, I, you know, advocating for myself, but I've gotten much better at it because as I've seen other people do it and, and, you know, and it's important, you know, especially for a DNI team to have a, a strong leader who's not only advocating for others, but advocating for herself and her team. Um, and so that's, so those, that's it. And tell me what you don't like or did it like about like a current, or you don't have to say current for real because of this question is very weighted, but a, a previous manager, like what's, what's a management skill that did not resonate with you? Oh boy. Okay. So a management skill that I don't like, I don't like, well, and who does? Nobody likes micromanagers, right? Right. Um, and I'm not actually, I'm, I do not, I'm not experiencing that at all um, in my current role. And I'm trying to think of what else I don't, what other management styles I don't like. Well, of course, I don't like managers who are, um, you know, uh, loud and aggressive just to be loud and aggressive like that. I, I mean, I believe me, that is the worst. And in those situations, I actually do. I mean, I'm quite capable of standing up to that, especially if I see it directed at others. Like I, you know, listen, I've, I, yeah, I, I seem nice and I am, I, I am nice, <laughs> but I don't let people walk over me or other people in particular. Yelling at work is a thing that I'm like, I cannot understand. <laughs> I don't get it. So a lot of companies are asking these unique interview questions. So very um, kind of interesting questions, um, almost tricky. And we love to pull them and ask our own guests them. So this one is um, if you were interviewing for The Balance. And the question is, if you were on an island and could only bring, bring three things, what would you bring? Oh, my goodness. Wow. Okay. 
Let's see. I'd bring an unlimited water supply, an unlimited um, energy source. <laughs> I was going to say, no and, food, no water, no family. Don't, they're there. <laughs> and, my, and my phone, because then that way I could, uh, I could, uh, you know, with an unlimited source of energy, I could charge and I would uh, be able to watch my shows and watch, um, you know, read and everything else. Is that cheating? But anyway, that's sort of what <laughs> What, um, what's one, what's one show you're watching right now that you're loving? My favorite show that, um, went off the year, I'd say now about seven months ago or eight months ago was Jane the Virgin. I love that show. I even wrote a commentary about the ending of the show. And to be honest, I've been in denial because I've refused to watch like the last episode. <laughs> like I, 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 I tried to uh, DVR, but it, something happened. There was some like blackout. In the, <laughs> um, there were some wars going on with the cable companies and whatnot. And I, but I obviously can access it through streaming. And I just, I'm, I'm in denial. It's like, I, I just don't want, I just don't want to see the ending because I think in the back of my head or my subconscious, I'm thinking, well, really it's not over. So that's, that's just, um, I love that show. And so I, you know, I have not really discovered a new show that I really, really um, loved. I mean, you know, and I'm not embarrassed to say, you know, because of all the, you know, the stressful and deep stuff I deal with, I do watch a soap opera. Like when I'm on my exercise bike, I watch The Bold and the Beautiful. The new episodes start this week. So, you know, that's just mindless stuff just to distract myself. Um, I've also, sorry, one more thing. Again, my not mindless. Again, in the context of the pandemic, I don't know why. I had never watched, again, it's just fun, uh, Steve Harvey and family food. The kids can sort of, you know, weigh in and, and guess. And my dad even, like, now that he's staying with us temporarily, he'll, he'll watch it and enjoy it as a break from CNN, which he watches nonstop. I mean, I'm not kidding, like literally nonstop, which I don't think is healthy. I, although I would love everybody to continue to watch as much CNN as possible, but you know, so yeah, Family Feud. We watch a lot of Family Feud um, as you know in the in the evenings just to kind of unwind a little bit. We just all need something. I I don't know the word. Yeah, like I would also say mindless, but literally to like take our minds, let our minds rest for even half an hour a day. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. It is. I can't tell you. Well, we have reached our lightning round, which I'm going to ask you a few <coughs> quick career questions to wrap up the interview. Um, and you can just answer the first thing that comes to your head. Um, what's the best job that you've ever had? SVP and Chief Diversity and Inclusion <laughs> Officer for Warner Media News and Sports. <laughs> love it. I love when that's the answer, if it's my current job. And what's the worst job you've ever had? Oh, wow. Okay. As a college student at Harvard um, to earn money, I had to distribute like a newsletter. So I'd have to walk up and down stairs, like, literally, this is a long time ago. I won't even say how long ago it was and distribute like this, like a uh, newsletter. So that, I think that was pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's all is there like the fresh forms? Like, yeah. <laughs> what's the um? What's the best piece of career advice you've received? Oh, the best piece of career advice I've ever received is, um, when you make decisions about whether to change a job or change a position, make sure you're not running from something, but running towards something. 
That's really important. You're making the decision based on what the future or opportunity is offering you and not so much, you know, based on what's going wrong in the current opportunity. It's really important to be clear eyed as you make future decisions or decisions about your future. That's really good advice. I love that. Have you ever received a piece of career advice that was that bad that you really were like, I shouldn't follow this? If you get advice that just doesn't seem consistent with you or your personality, don't follow it. It may be good advice or it may have worked well for that particular person, um, but you have to be comfortable with it. That's great. That's really good to think about. What's your most memorable office moment? Uh, there are two that come to mind. One was really positive. One was sad. Um, but it was when, uh, and you know, growing up as a real, you know, my generation growing up, a huge Michael Jackson fan. Uh, <laughs> and hard to say that now, <laughs> but at CNN, you get all these alerts and things like that. And, you know, the, we're working to confirm certain things. And I remember just um, being on the phone with my mom and my sisters, and we were like, virtually, we were all connected, telephonically, we we're all connected, because that was, you know, a big part of growing up, like Jackson 5 and everything else. And so just, just being together with my family, um, as the news was unfolding, and then when it was confirmed, it was, that was just, uh, that's really memorable, it was very, very special. Uh, a, a, a positive moment also related to the news in the office since that's my work for a news organization. Um, and that was when the decision came down relating to um, gay marriage. And I just, uh, I'll never forget that. And to me, it was like, that must have been how it felt when Brown versus the Board of Education was decided. Like that, just that feeling of, you know, wow, this is like, society is changing and um you know people are being respected for who they are and they're being valued for who they are and that that sense of like human dignity um powerful so that's 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 something that i remember as well those are beautiful and this has been a very emotional interview for me i've had my own ups and downs throughout the whole thing oh those are those are beautiful i mean i guess when you work at a news organization you know you're you're living so many of these moments and you're connected to the general public in so many ways and to be able you know i can obviously connect with those experiences other people our listeners can connect with them and it's really it's really unifying it must be a special place to be every day it is. It is. And I'm, I feel so fortunate and I do feel as if I found my calling, so to speak. And um, I'm so grateful for that. So grateful for the organization. And most of all, I'm grateful for all of the, you know, all of the people um, inside the company and in society who are, are just, you know, committed to making a difference. And I, you know, as I said, we have to seize this moment and I'm determined to do what I can. Awesome. Well, thank you for all the work you're doing every day to help the world. You know, it's not an easy, <laughs> small mission. <laughs> that's, why I've, that's why I've got bold and the beautiful to like, you know, <laughs> keep you going. <laughs> I can't remember if I said this. I also, I also will not watch the finale of a show. Like I'll watch a hundred seasons of a show and then I will just like save it and save it. I do, I do that all the time. 
I did not know that that was like a thing, but I, I just can't, I can't bring myself to do it. Maybe by the next time we talk, I will have watched the finale <laughs> of The Virgin. But I love the show, love all the actors and actresses, and uh, I'm not ready to let go yet. So. <laughs> Well, I'm right there with you. I do, yeah, I know. And then some. Then eventually, sometimes I'll just like one night I'll watch it. But it takes time. It takes time to say goodbye. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you if they're looking to you? Are you on social media? <laughs> is there anything if they want to follow your continue to follow your journey? Is there anywhere that they can find you? Well, I am on LinkedIn, so I think that's the best way to find me. That's um, great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been an incredible conversation. I, like I said, I've learned so much and I really, really appreciate you sharing all your wisdom with me, especially, you know, this is obviously a timely conversation and I know that you have a lot going on. Um, I can only imagine. So thank you. Thank you so much. And it was so nice to meet you. You've been listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie Hockheiser-Ilkovich. Thank you to the amazing team that works on this podcast. Chelsea Orcutt, Elizabeth Roberts, Chrisanne Grise, Mandy Carr, and Alex Fetter, who wrote our original theme music. And thank you to the team at New York Wiki who supports us, including, but not limited to, everyone at Kellen, Deidre Wyeth, and June Price, who designed the show's logo and does all of our graphics. For more information about Coffee Break with New York Wiki, go to nywici.org slash podcast. That's nywiki.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening.